1460 AM Philadelphia and WPEN HD2, Burlington, Philadelphia. The following programming is sponsored by Clean and Sober Media. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. If you need immediate help, please call the National Substance Abuse and Mental Health Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. Welcome to Clean and Sober Radio, brought to you in part by Jefferson University Hospitals and Thomas Jefferson University, providing excellent clinical and compassionate care in the Philadelphia region, a proven leader in healthcare and education since 1825, and Acadia Healthcare, with locations on the East Coast. Acadia maintains a standard for excellence in the treatment of behavioral health and addiction concerns. And now, here are your hosts, Gary Handler and Mark Sigmund. Hey, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Clean and Sober Radio features real people with real stories about addiction to drugs and alcohol. Mark, what do we have this week in recovery news? So with nearly 200 sites operating in more than a dozen countries, safe injection sites remain controversial in the USA. There are two sites currently that opened in New York City in 2021 in both Manhattan and Harlem. They're currently looking at some of the numbers from these sites and what has been going on. And what they found is they have had 2,300 participants use its services 50,000 times since then. There have been 700 overdoses that were intervened on and stopped with zero deaths at this time. And, you know, the people that are that are doing this are really hoping that other cities will pick up on this and start offering safe injection sites, just like in many other countries. Well, you know, that's very encouraging news. Um, The numbers don't lie. Um, I'm just wondering, is are they legal in the United States? So I don't know. Uh, you know, I guess it depends on jurisdiction, because remember, there was some laws about about addicts congregate. There's all yeah, kinds of yeah, stuff yeah. that throws some blur in the water. But there's no question that we need these right now. Well, Barry. you know, everybody, I think, would agree we need them. But then they say, but not in my neighborhood. That's the That's, problem. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, even myself, if it was right around the corner, you could see how you would be you would think, is there going to be increased crime around, increased drug sales? Um, it makes a lot of sense why it's controversial. Right. Well, hopefully it'll, people will come around and, and see that uh, uh, the, the benefits outweigh the negative uh, parts of this thing. What else you have? So another study came out which says legalizing marijuana does not raise drug and alcohol abuse. And this came out of University of Colorado and University of Mississippi. And according to the study, an adult living in a state with marijuana is no more likely to develop an SUD disorder. Um, They based this on twin studies where they had 4,000 twins in a long-term study, and they found no increase in drug abuse in the states that were legal compared to ones that weren't. What they did find, though, is more use of marijuana. Yeah. Guess what? I don't believe that whole no. case study, right? I, yeah. I I just don't believe it. Um, I just don't believe it, Mark. Well, and it's <sighs> missing a big thing, okay? And uh, juvenile? Juveniles. Anytime they're using it, it's abuse. I'm not seeing 
the numbers of the juveniles that are doing it, because according to most people I know, they're doing it all over the high schools now. Their parents are getting cards. They're getting their parents supplies. You know, this isn't taking into account juveniles, right? Yeah, no, it absolutely isn't. So, look, I guess we don't really know. Uh, it sounds fishy to me, but, I, you know, I would think that uh, with the legalization, people are going to pe- – people that wouldn't normally use it at least would be curious and want to try it. And then once you try it, you like it, it feels good, and you keep going. That that would be my uh, take on this. Uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Common sense. Common sense. Uh, all right. We're going we're gonna to take our first break. And here's a question. Have you ever robbed a bank, Mark? I have not. Have you ever been shot multiple times? No, I haven't. Have you ever been in prison for years? No. Well, when we come back, our special guest... Uh, Nolan Burchette will will give us the whole rundown of what his life was and what it's like today because it's amazing. We'll be back. This is Clean and Sober Radio. A cancer diagnosis can knock the wind out of you. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health can help. Our brand new Asplund Cancer Pavilion brings you 86,000 square feet of cancer-fighting science for truly comprehensive care. Backed by the strength of an NCI-designated cancer center. Call 1-800-JEFF-NOW. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health. The power to outscience cancer. 888-728-9941. This is Clean and Sober Radio. Hey, we're also heard on uh, these uh, great stations. WGAC, Augusta, Georgia. WHFS Tampa, Florida, and the big talker, WWWE Atlanta, Georgia. Everybody, welcome to the show. And I got to say, before we bring Nolan on, and Mark, I know you'll agree, we have done almost 500 interviews, and this guy that's coming on now is one of our favorites. He absolutely is. And we were just talking a couple weeks ago. We're like, we have to get Nolan back on. It's been a little while. He's our good friend from the West Coast. Absolutely. And welcome, Nolan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? You sound so calm and such a nice guy and serene. And uh, uh, let's let's get into it. Let's let's really get into it now. okay, Nolan, because we got a lot of people watching. And when we posted this last night, you know, your story is so amazing. Uh, We got a big audience today. So let's talk about where you grew up. What was your childhood like? Uh, Let's start there. Sure. Um, Growing up, I had two parents that were really supportive, two brothers. All of us were, were good kids. We're kind of spoiled. Mm-hmm. Um, both of my parents, they're, they're still alive. They're still married. Great. So growing up was an a easy childhood. You know, they kind of spoiled us a little bit, and we played sports. I think the trouble didn't really start for me until I was about 14, 15. Started uh, getting into Dad's liquor cabinet here and there. Then experimented with marijuana, um, but all throughout high school, I did well in school and played sports. Didn't really have any legal issues or anything until a little later. But yeah, growing up was an ideal childhood. And so um, you had a lot of friends. Uh, were you a good student? Did you care about school? Um, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't even know what these questions have to do with what we're going to get into, but. 
you know, I think people want to know – they saw the headlines, but they want to know you better. So that's why Mark and I are asking you these questions. You know? sure. Well, I, I think they're good questions Yeah. because it, it just goes to show that addiction and you know, drug abuse can affect anybody. It's, it's not always you know, a certain walk of life or a socioeconomic status that takes us to drug use. I mean, like today we have all walks of life that come through our program here in, at Touchstone. So that I, I think it's a good question. So, um, so were you working? Okay, you, did you graduate high school? I did. Yeah, I, I did well throughout high school. Got good grades. Um, my senior year is when I really started using marijuana heavily. So grades slipped a little bit, but I. Ended up graduating and going to a San Diego State straight out of high school. Wow. And were you working in a family business at that point? Um, no, not yet. I, I started working for my dad um, part-time on during the summers when I was 19, inspecting produce all around California. Right. What kind of business did your dad have? What was it? A, tell us about it. It was a produce export business. Uh-huh. So he'd buy the fruits and mostly grapes but tree fruit as well here in california and ship it all over asia right so i was inspecting the produce before we ship it yeah and so so you said that it it started with marijuana for you was this something where you started using here and there and it quickly became like an everyday thing were you really abusing marijuana at that point yeah i mean like you said before i came on as a kid I shouldn't have been using it at all, and I know it can really affect your, the way your brain develops when you use it at, at a young age. So, Nolan, do you uh, think it's a yeah, – I was using it all the time. You, uh, so in your view, is, is marijuana a gateway? Yes. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Primes the brain. It does, especially at a young yeah. age. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question in my mind. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, the, so this uh, – <clears throat> I don't want to get into the legalization part, but it's complicated and it's not as clear cut as everybody thinks it is. And it's going to cause a lot, a lot, a lot of problems in the years to come. And it's not a vitamin. It's not, it's not a vitamin. <laughs> All right. So you go through college and you're uh, – anything else besides marijuana you're using? Yeah. So in college, I quickly got into some street drugs. You know, I was using alcohol pretty much every day. And then started using cocaine, and I mean, you you name it, I tried it. My freshman year of college, right. ended up getting into some trouble. Um, got kicked out of San Diego State, basically, and moved up to Fresno State, and then got a DUI shortly thereafter. But yeah, all all through college, I was using all kinds of things. Yeah, and and uh, uh, do you think if you never picked up marijuana, you would have? Used everything you would have gone directly to cocaine or whatever. Uh, I, I I doubt it. You know, I, I think it kind of desensitized me. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I I was using marijuana all the time, and that kind of got boring. And then I I was going to try something else, but yeah, I, I mean that's a hard question to answer. But I, I don't think I would have tried it. Okay. Hey, listen, I just want to say if you're if you're just joining us now. Um, we are talking with Nolan Burchette, who's a, a friend of the show. He's been on many times. And the, uh, in the incredible story of robbing banks and being shot 
and going to prison and then uh, becoming this incredible executive director of Touchstone Recovery Centers in California. The story is just so amazing, Nolan. And, you know, when they say somebody does a 180, holy mackerel, you, it, 180 in the, in the dictionary, your face is next to it. I can tell you that. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, it, it, just amazing. Okay. So, um, and I also want to mention, if you want to give, you want to give us a call and, and talk to Nolan and ask him questions, this is really a rare opportunity. One eight 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 seven two eight nine nine four one. That's one eight 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 seven two eight nine nine four one. Okay, so you're uh, graduated college. You're doing. You're being. You know, I guess a regular kid. You know, trying stuff out. Had a DUI. DUI. Okay. Now, how how does this escalate <clears throat> into um, desperation? Sure. So I think I. Knew pretty early on I had an addictive personality. You know, I would dive into things, whether it was something productive or something that was bad for me. And I, I really got out of hand when I started using opiates. Okay. Uh, when I was about a senior in college, I was about 22 or 3, uh, a friend of mine let me try Oxycontin, mm. which back mm. in 2002, 2003 was – was like the fentanyl of those days. Okay. So I got addicted to it pretty quickly, and things escalated pretty quickly. And I ended up in treatment actually. So I went to treatment for 28 days, got out, and then quickly joined the Marine Corps. It was the the stigma of being an addict. I was kind of embarrassed about it, and I so I ran off. I figured being a Marine would solve all those problems. Um, it didn't. I, I kept uh, drinking while I was in the Marines. And then right after I discharged, got right back into opiates. How long were you in the Marines for? Uh, just about five years. You had an honorable discharge? Yeah. Never an issue while you were in the service? No, I mean, I, I got myself into some trouble here and there. Yeah. Where were you? Up, uh, I was just drinking out of hand. Yeah, you know? yeah. Where were you stationed? At first, Fort Leonard Wood for training, and then came back to Camp Pendleton, and then ended up at a Fresno. There's a, a reservist base there at Fresno. Wow, that's incredible. Hey, you know, we have a caller on the line this early uh, in the show. Um, caller, are you there? Welcome to Clean and Sober Radio. Hi, I'm here. Um, is there a playback? I can hear myself talk. Well, that would be on your phone. All right. Okay, so I'm all right. <laughs> you can hear me. Okay. Hi, Nolan. My name's Sophia. I'm actually Gary's daughter, and I and I'm calling in because I wanted to tell you that your story is a story that is so powerful, and it it really is so interesting and fascinating. And I and I wanted to ask you a question. It like a but it, if it's too sure. personal, that's okay. Um, what were you? What was going through your? Because I know the story. I'm not going to say anything. But what was going through your mind, like right before everything kind of came to a halt? And like, what was going? Do you remember? Or were? Do you mean like before I committed the the first crime that I? Or yeah. do you mean like? I don't want right, to give right, too much away because I know you haven't said the whole story. Sure. Yet, so. 
Um, yes. Well, I, I guess to answer your question is I, I was just really desperate. And then I, I wasn't really obviously thinking about consequences. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if that was the farthest thing from my mind. Really what I was thinking about was maintaining my addiction because I'm, as all of us know, opiate withdrawal is just, it's horrific. It, it, I was embarrassed as well because, you know, like I right. said earlier, I'd already been to treatment. So I thought, right. you know, I, I didn't okay. want to, I didn't want to ask for help again. I didn't want to admit to my family and friends that I had uh, failed and that I was, I was using again. So I, w- I was just desperate to not let people know that I needed help again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that you are, I, I, I got to say, I don't, I don't really ever say I'm a favorite on, on the show but I, you are my you're my favorite story and it's i just if anyone's listening listen to the end because the story's really 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 well incredible. thank thank you sophie that's yeah. a great call you, i hope things are good right. out there yep be well all right be thanks well. everyone have a good weekend you, you too. too you know i think i think she makes a good point his story it, the, the 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 reason we're we're broadcasting his story because if some right. one person hears this and it flips mm-hmm. them in some way, Nolan's uh, all that stuff was not for for nothing. And you know, you can you can hear it about this this desperation of being hooked on on opioids. You know, and when was the first time Nolan that you realized it? Like, man, if I don't use, I'm getting sick. Did you know right away it was? Because I've had some people say that they thought they got the flu at first, and then they finally somebody pointed out that it was they were in withdrawal. When was the first time you noticed that? It was a, only a couple of weeks after I started using, you know, I, at first it was like every couple of days. I, and then, I mean, very quickly, by the end of the first week, it became a, a daily habit where I I had to have one of those pills. And then as soon as I'd run out, I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't take hours. It would be it, as soon as I didn't have any left, that became like the the only thing I can think about. So if I had to work, I wasn't going to work. If I had a, you know, a date with, whoever I was dating at the time that that got canceled because you know my priorities would would switch up really quickly so um yeah I, I knew right away I knew right away that I was hooked because it, it it wasn't like I started feeling sick right away I started getting like I'd panic and I'd feel like oh man I, I gotta get some more mm-hmm. and then your the withdrawal symptoms would kick in shortly thereafter you know it's so amazing you know I, I was addicted to a drug uh, called Quaalude, but it, it was nothing like, you know, you're going to get hooked on within a week. That is so frightening. And, you know, for anybody listening or watching, just listen to that. After a week, your life will change. Yeah, and, and I bet it quickly turned to crushing and using them in other ways. Right? Is that what happened, Nolan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much right off the bat. And especially, like, back then, I'm, I don't even think they – I think you can still get those um, Oxycontins, but I'm, sure. I'm really not sure if, if – I mean, usually when people come in with an opiate addiction, they're they're using another form of it, whether it's, you know, a Norco or a, a fentanyl or heroin. But back then, they, they had these time-release um, covers on those – on Oxycontin. So you'd have to wash it off and then crush it up in order for it to work immediately. So, yeah, it was like immediately we were I, – I wasn't using it as directed. It's not like I was popping it 
uh, one pill at a time. We were crushing them up. Uh, uh, Dolan, besides crushing it and whatever else you do with it, smoked it, whatever, did your life start to change? Did you start to lie more? Did you start to cheat oh, yeah. more? Did you steal more? You know, uh, all that stuff is, is part of the deal, isn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that's that's one of the best things about, like, being in recovery and knowing that I, I don't have to remember some BS story I, I told my mom yesterday. And I, I don't have to, like, keeping all those lies straight was so exhausting. Oh, and, man. I mean, you get caught over and over. And it was it was just, it was pathetic, really. And then, you know, that's something that I, I tell um, the clients these days is, you know, you, you be proud that you're on, you're able to be honest now. And then that's one of the, the biggest warning signs is when somebody starts getting caught in these little lies that, that really aren't necessary. You know, that's, that's always a big red flag that somebody's using again. Yeah. It's a boy. It's, you know, just the, the, the desperation, the thought of you could take something that you thought was going to make you feel good for a for a while. And then all of a sudden it's got you. It takes yep. over. And, if you know, if you think – if any of our listeners think they're immune to that or whatever, listen, all our brains are pretty much the same and our bodies work the same way. And you start on opioids, it is not going to be a good ending. Yeah, and the crazy thing about it is, you know, when it comes to genetics, you always hear about this genetic predisposition. But as a counselor, I've seen a ton of people that I could not find addiction in their family. <laughs> You know, and they had full-blown opioid addictions, um, which is scary, don't you think, Nolan? Yeah, I do. I do. I I think, I mean, I have the most experience, at least personally, with with opiates. And, I mean, I I don't care if you have an addictive personality or not or if you're predisposed to to addiction. I think um, you start taking those things, even as prescribed by a doctor, and you're going to get addicted to them. So it's it's they're just really really dangerous in my opinion, and yeah. I, I know they are medically necessary for some people with chronic pain, um, but you know when they when they do have to stop taking them, you know it, it's not easy, and it's it's definitely a process. If you're just uh, watching us now, uh, listening to us, you want to watch, go to uh, go to uh, Clean and Sober uh, page, Clean and Sober Radio on Facebook, and you can watch us do the show. Like some of these folks, I want to mention uh, Judge Christopher Maddox. Happy Friday and happy Friday to you, Judge, also. Kathy Wolf Collin is today celebrating 25 years of sobriety. Amazing. Amazing. Hey, Kathy, big, that's what it's all about. Um, uh, uh, Nolan, do you know this woman, Kelly uh, Irwin Burchette, is watching? I don't know if you know her. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I met her. It met her. Uh, Laura Story, congratulations to Kathy. Um, uh, Ricky uh, Trevon is watching. Robert Brandis is watching. Richard Carrere is watching. Linda Carroll. Uh, Laurie Kogan Wernick is watching. We'll get to everybody else. There's a long list on here, but I think it's a, it's a compliment and a tribute to you that people are interested uh, on knowing that you can be a badass. And then you can come around and do some wonderful things. We're going to take a break right now, and we're going to be back uh, with Nolan, and we're going to we're going to find out what it's like to rob a bank. We'll be right back. This is Clean and Silver Radio. Diversity in the workplace is more than gender. 
ethnicity, and even age. It also means people in recovery. The Higher Calling Foundation works to end the stigma of substance use disorders in the workplace by helping those in recovery find jobs, get career counseling, and more. All things insurance doesn't cover, and all at no cost. And encouraging businesses to hire employees in recovery. Because with the great resignation, there are jobs to be filled, and employees in recovery are an untapped demographic. It's mutually beneficial. And it's simply good business. Started by employment attorney in recovery, Kevin Heyer, the Higher Calling Foundation believes everyone deserves a second chance and works to make that happen. And now, diversity in the workplace demands it. Visit HigherCalling.org. That's H-Y-E-R Calling.org. And find out how we can help you. Hi, this is Randy the Blade Lurch. I listen to Clean and Sober Radio. 888-728-9941. This is Clean and Sober Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking to Nolan Burchette, who the end of the story is quite, quite incredibly incredible. And so is the story we're going to talk about now. Nolan, let's let's get into the crime, which uh, Mark is biting at the uh, bit to get into this. Actually, so am I. All right. You're you're in a desperate place, man, and you're. Now, now you're the the crazy thoughts are are, are uh, seeping into your head, and you're going to do anything now, to either to get out of your misery or get money or whatever. What made you decide that a bank was the place to go to? Yeah, so I mean, like we just talked about, you know, the the lies had built up, and I all I really needed to do at that point was was go to my parents or go to a friend of mine that that cared about me and say, hey. I'm hooked on these damn pills again. Excuse my language. I'm I'm hooked on these pills again, and I need to, I I need help. I I need to go to detox. I I just I need out of this bind. But instead, you know, I started. I just doubled down on the lies, and I would borrow money from my in-laws, and or I'd borrow money from my parents, or I'd borrow money from my brother. You know, anybody that cared about me, those were the ones that that got manipulated you know and that's i i see that all the time these days where the the ones that are closest to us are the ones that get treated the worst when you said in-laws uh, were you married to kelly at that point no i wasn't i i was married and uh at that point and that marriage dissolved when i got the handcuffs put on me mm, obviously <laughs> okay obviously okay all right keep going keep going keep going so, so yeah, so I was, you know, I, I had dug myself in this, in this financial bind. I was strung out on, on opiates. Um, I was embarrassed and I, I made a desperate and stupid decision to, to try to cover my tracks. So it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really a plan to get rich or to, you know, to move down to Mexico and, and, you know, live in luxury or anything like that. I was just trying to pay off my debts. And then get another bag of those of those pills that were keeping me well. Um, so at you know at first I, I was just thinking of ways out of the out of the crisis I'd put myself in, and that was one of the things that came to mind. It was I, I had a friend in high school that worked at a bank, and she had told me that she, she had told me some things that that led me to to this decision. And it was, you know, it was a stupid decision. I, I don't want to repeat what she said. Sure. I don't want to give anyone out there. No, 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 no. But um, so I, you know, I decided to 
write a note and to walk into a bank and cover my identity and then pass the note to the teller. And I, I did it. All right. So you get to the bank. You get out of your car. You're out of your Jeep, I believe it was. And that was the, the last. Yeah, yeah. OK. What was it like on the how many banks did you rob? Three. Three. OK. The first bank, when you put your hands at the door to pull it open, were, oh, yeah. was it blank? Was your head like blank? No. So the you know, I I had so the first time I tried it, and I, I think I I've told you this. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe not, but the first time I tried it, I uh, I walked up to the bank and I, my nerves like got a hold of me and my stomach started bubbling and I threw up all over the ground right in front of the door. Right. And I just I turned around and walked away. Right. Uh, so a couple more weeks went by and then I. I was desperate and stupid enough to try it again, and I I did it. Um, yeah, walking in there was like it was like an out of out of body experience. I mean, I know that sounds stupid, but no, it does. I, no, I just kind of strolled in and and couldn't believe what I was doing, and I I did it. And then I took off running and um, got in the vehicle and drove off, and I I know I got away with it, and that that was. Uh, probably one of the worst things that happened to me because I got away with it and I decided, you know, in a couple, in a few more weeks when I was in the same situation that I had just been in, um, I did it again. Wasn't law enforcement like watching for you now? I mean, you hit two banks. I'm, I'm assuming it was in, in close proximity of each other. And uh, yeah, yeah, they were in the same county, um, same, you know, same MO and all that stuff. I did the same thing every time it was. It, it was just I, I covered my identity, you know. I didn't I didn't have a criminal background. They really I mean I had a a job that paid really well, and I was going to work every day. I was you know there was no real reason for them to be watching me, so I I figured I was scot free. And then, um, yeah, I mean I it would it would have been a matter of time for they would have got me, but they you know it I just kept doing it, so that's how they got me. How much money did you get? All told, did you get anything? I mean, no, not really, because in the end, I ended up having to pay it all back in restitution. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got a bunch of bullet holes and uh, some years in prison is what I got. Question for you, Nolan. Uh, so uh, two questions. Um, one of them is, like, when you walked into these banks, like, how did the teller react? And the other question I have is – was there complete paranoia? I'm just picturing robbing a bank and the next day going to like Wawa and stuff and being like, are people going to like, is the cops going to bust me right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I should have been thinking that way. Yeah, I should have, but I didn't. I, I kind of just pretended it never happened and it, I put it out of mind and I just went about my day. And wow. then, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know why I was so, so naive and it was really dumb because I, I know they after getting arrested and talking to the detectives and finding out all the information they had they, they could have done that at any moment like they were they were right on my tail they knew they knew it was someone like me um they were probably zeroing in because of the the vehicles i used you know they were all registered to, to either me or my family so it wasn't like i was going to get away with it but you know, I, I was too busy 
taking my pills and pretending it didn't happen. Well, so worry about that. I'm assuming when you went to each of these three places, banks, you were high, weren't you? Yeah, either that or or getting sick. Or getting yeah. sick. If that's, I mean, that was a that was the way my life was then. Was the, I was either sick, or I was, you know, um, running out of pills. So the like third constant. the third bank that you hit the cut, they started chasing you, right? What happened? Yep. What, what was that? Was, tell tell our audience what how that play out. So the third the the third time. Um, there was a, a CDC sergeant, CDC's California Department of Correction. Yeah. So there's a CDC sergeant in the drive-through teller window. Oh. Uh, I oh. was inside, and then so he saw the whole thing that was happening. And I know all this from the police report, but he saw what was going on inside. And so when I took off running, um, he uh, he followed me. So I, I ran down a one-way street the wrong way. He followed. I didn't know he was doing that. And then I, I jumped in the, the Jeep and I took off. And then I noticed um, a vehicle following me that last, you know, maybe, maybe a, a mile away. I, I noticed that there was this car that was still behind me. So I, I took four rights and he took four rights. Oh. And then I, I knew oh. he, was, he was following me. So then I hit the gas and I was driving through Tulare, California, like 90 miles an hour through residential neighborhoods, through... I mean, I don't know if I went through a school zone, but I probably would have if, if there was one that was in my path. And I total disregard for for anybody. You know, I was just panicked. And I I thank God I didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. So then I I end up um, 10 miles away in, in Visalia. He would stopped chasing me. I thought I had gotten away, but I guess the 911 dispatch he was on the phone with told him, quit chasing him. You know, you guys are going to kill somebody. So he stopped chasing me, and then uh, I got a about a quarter mile away from my house, so my destination. And then a an unmarked car pulled up behind me. Um, it was I could tell it was a cop because it had the lights behind the the driver's glass, you know, behind the windshield. I can see the lights. Oh yeah. And then um, I saw him on a on a radio. So then I thought, oh, maybe it's a coincidence, but no, it wasn't. And a white Tahoe with lights on top pulled up behind him and then they, they turned on their lights. So I, I looked back at him and I, I, you know, then it kind of reality started to set in like what I had done and, um, you know, but the trouble I was in. And like I said, I had never been in trouble before like, like that, you know, I've gotten a DUI, but other than that, I, I didn't know what jail was like or, you know, getting arrested was like, it's, I thought I'd I'd do 20 to 30 years in prison. I didn't know. Um, So then I, I looked back at the cop and told him I'm, you know, I just mouthed it and I said, I'm I'm not stopping. Um, And I took my seatbelt off and then I hit the gas. And at at that point, the, the cop started chasing me. My, my goal was to, to check out, you know, uh-huh. I, I kind of figured in, the, in that moment, my best option was, was just to, to check out and, and to, to stop living. Cause I, I didn't really know what the future looked like, but I knew at, at that point I thought it would, it would be horrible. I figured I'd be locked up the rest of my life. So I, I hit the gas and I looked for a um, telephone pole. Uh-huh. I found one about a, maybe a mile down the road with like a dirt lot behind it. 
so I I accelerated through it, and then the the telephone pole sheared when I when I ran into it. So I it's meaning like it swung on the lines. Yeah. So I went right through it essentially, and then the the van I mean the uh, jeep spun out, and I ended up in this cloud of dust. I, when I came to, because my my head had hit the windshield, and I ended up in the passenger seat. So when I came to, you know, I was kind of dazed, and I I heard guys yelling, um, stay, uh, get get your hands up or something like that. I I don't know really what they were yelling at me, but I'm assuming that's what it was. And then so I realized, well, that didn't work. So I got out of the vehicle and um, saw an officer with his gun uh, pointed at me. So, and I didn't know there was another one behind me as well. But he, you know, both of them were probably 15, 20 feet away from me. And then, so I motioned to my my waist, like I was going for a weapon, which I didn't have. But I I motioned to my waist and, and they unloaded on me. So they ended up shooting 18 shots seven of them hit me and then uh that was that was the end of that day what what did that what does it feel like to be shot i mean i'm sure nobody listening to this show has ever been shot what does that feel like yeah. do, do you feel it yeah oh yeah i felt it, it felt like a sledgehammer hit me in the chest because a, a couple of them got me like close to my heart i i have i think there's yeah there's four of them and like my my upper left torso area. Um, so those, I don't know which one I'm, I'm assuming the one right by my, like right by my heart, but there was one that did just, it felt like a sledgehammer hit me and it, it spun me around a little bit. And then I fell down. I ended up getting, you know, like I said, seven times, one in the knee, one in the, like in the back, um, both of my lungs were punctured. So it was, it was a rough day. Wow. Uh, I, yeah, it didn't feel good. You are your you're you're a very lucky guy. I mean, uh, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. But so this was basically ten years ago. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, about ten Th- years ago. So Nolan, uh, first first question is: Are you tired of telling that story? And two, yeah. when you think about it, it was a different person. And does it feel like you're reliving a movie, a bad movie? I mean. When when you well, think back I, on it, what 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 do you feel? I think I, the only time I really tell it is to you, Gary, <laughs> <laughs> and to Mark, and to and Mark. We always yeah. want to hear yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but no, I'm, that is funny, I mean, man. That is really funny. It's still emotional. Like, yeah, to, yeah, to, sure. You know, it's still like hard to talk about. But I mean, I figured I lived for a reason, you know, and and I, I don't know. It, it took a while to kind of figure out what what path i'd take from that point forward um and i'm you know i'm glad i, I didn't give up i, I again because i mean i that day that's exactly what i did is i i gave up i took a kind of a chicken way out of things i i shouldn't have chosen to do that you know but i i made a lot of mistakes how did you day. how did you tell your parents or did they already know because of the news Oh no, they I didn't get to talk to my parents for weeks, maybe months. Um, you know, they I was in custody at that point. They I, I was awake after I um got shot for about an hour, hour and a half and before I passed out and uh, when I passed out they were operating and then um I woke up in the hospital, handcuffed to a bed. Yeah. 
and one of the officers sitting in the room with me was a guy I'd grown up with. Oh, so I, yeah. So he looked at me and, he, you know, I asked him um, if I can call anybody. They said, no. Um, I, yeah. So I know, you know, in, in hindsight, after talking to my mom, like what, what they were going through was not fun. They wouldn't tell them much. They just knew I'd been shot. They knew that I was arrested. Uh, I was in critical condition. So, you know, my, my mom and dad, they they were probably going through hell. Oh, there's no question. You know, I think about during my addiction and all the criminal activities, I never, ever once considered my parents' feelings during the whole thing. Never. Yep. Yep. Right? I can relate. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, now it's like it makes me sick. Well, of course, we, we have kids now. I mean, you have two beautiful kids, a beautiful wife, and uh, it does make a difference, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, um, big difference. So let, let's um, <clears throat> I want to run through some more people that are watching. We'll take a break in a little bit and then we're going to get we're going to get to your incredible life now. And uh, because it is incredible. So one eight 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 seven two eight nine nine four one. If you want to give us a call and uh, jump into this, you know, great uh, conversation we're having. Um, <clears throat> also. Um, if you would like to watch us do it, again, go to Facebook to Clean and Sober Radio, and you can watch us do the show like this, like these people. Steve Sussman, hello from Palm Beach, Florida. Lisa Quinn is watching. Rodney Gordon is watching. Uh, all right, guys, you're watching. Why don't you give us a call? All right? Don't say the chicken thing. All right. Okay, I'm not going to say they're chickens if they don't call Mark. Okay, right, it kind of spooks them. I think it, it spooks them. Right? It spooks them. So yeah, I mean, th- this is just a, a great story. Um, what I'm going to do is I, I would like to just before the break, um, Touchstone Recovery Center believes in a comprehensive, individualized, and evidence-based approach in working with substance abuse and mental health disorders. The philosophy promotes personal growth and development, utilizing a person-centered approach to treatment and long-term success includes interrogation, uh, integration, not interrogation, uh, integration of the family system and an alumni group. It's important to bring all these together. And I'm talking about Touchstone Recovery Center because our guest, Nolan Burchette, who everybody heard what he has come from, is the executive director of this facility. And if this doesn't show that we can and do get better and we can do great things, I I don't know what does. And it just shows that, like, you're here for such a reason, right? You know, because who survived seven gunshot wounds from the police at close range? Right. And, you know, let's jump in before the break. I know I'm jumping all around. You were sentenced. What were your charges? And where did did you go for the uh, years in prison? Sure. So I got uh, six counts of second degree robbery, and that's because I didn't use a weapon, yeah. um, which are all considered violent fel- felon, um, felony charges. So um, six strikes on my first arrest and then um, two counts of resisting and one count of evading. So nine felony charges. Um, they ran a lot of them concurrent. Right. So I, I ended up they took it easy on me because I'd, I'd never been in trouble before. Mm-hmm. So um, I got six years, which was about half of what my lawyer said 
or my public defender said that uh, I, I should expect. So back in so, 2013, did they consider uh, addiction uh, part of the problem? Yeah, they did actually. They um, the one of the judges that I had seen offered for me to go to Delancey Street, which is a it's a it's a program up in they have one in the Bay Area in San Francisco and they have one in L.A. And the you know the the DA wasn't very happy about that. So I I actually interviewed with Delancey Street and they denied me. So instead of going to prison, I I almost got to do two years at a, at a program. Wow. But I'm, I'm really, gl- I gotta be honest. I mean, I'm glad that that didn't happen because mm-hmm. it, it took a long time for it, of being in there. And I mean, being in, in prison for that long, it, it changed the way that I think about life. It changed a lot of things. And I, I'm like, looking back, it, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. And I know that's not true for a lot of people. I mean, prison's a rough place and there's, is violent and it's there's it's gang i mean just run by gangs and it's racist and there's all kinds of problems with with prison but for me that that's what it took and i mean as evidenced by my life today like i i can't i can't discount it it was it was exactly what i needed wow incredible we're going to take a break now and uh, nolan when we come back let's talk about uh, your your new uh founding career all right. This is Clean and Sober Radio. A cancer diagnosis can knock the wind out of you. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health can help. Our brand new Asplund Cancer Pavilion brings you 86,000 square feet of cancer fighting science for truly comprehensive care. Backed by the strength of an NCI designated cancer center. Call 1 800 Jeff now. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health. The power to outscience cancer. Hi, I'm Billy J. Kramer, and I listen to Clean and Sober Radio. 888-728-9941. This is Clean and Sober Radio. You know, when you talk about redemption and you talk about doing great things after a horrible situation in your life, our guest, Nolan Burchette, is the, I want to say the poster boy, but the poster man for, for this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Bank robbery of recovery. I yeah. mean, amazing. So, all right, you get out of prison. And what, what year did you get out? In 18 or something or 19? Yeah, or? T- 2018. I had, before I'd gotten out, I, I had started going to, to school to, to be a drug and alcohol counselor while I was incarcerated. There, there was a couple programs at um, the prison I was at that allowed you to go back to college. Um, it's, you know, community college would actually go in inside the prison where the professor would come in and, and teach a class. It, it was a, it was a process to get on the list and, and to, to be able to do that. Um, but, you know, I was patient. I didn't have much else going on. So I got on the list. And then whenever I, I was able, I started going back to school um, so while I was incarcerated, I was going, I was going to, to college classes and then I had it set up through this, there's an organization here in, in California called, it might be out of California as well, but I know it's here. It's called Project Rebound that helps, um, formerly incarcerated men and women get into yeah. to college. So they had helped me set it up while I was still incarcerated. And then 
the day I got out, I, I knew that I was already accepted and going to uh, California State and in Bakersfield, so CSUB. Um, so I, I got out in July, and in August I was sitting in a college class going to going to school, uh, wow. which is pretty cool, you know. And I I, I knew like the recidivism rate is is just atrocious. Yeah. You know, most people are going right back to prison within 90 days, um, sometimes a year. But I mean, it's the, the percentage is ridiculous. So I, I, I didn't expect that that would happen to me, but I knew that, you know, statistically I needed to do something positive. I needed to um, stay busy and, and continue down the path that I had already started on. So I ended up at Cal State Bakersfield, um, taking psychology classes. I, I had, uh, started working while I was going to college, like, you know, trying to earn some money. I was renovating houses and doing, putting up Christmas lights. I mean, you name it. I, I couldn't get a job anywhere because of my record. Sure. So while I was going to school, you know, I just, I had to make ends meet somehow and I, I figured it out, but I, I mean, I was taking the bus this is five years ago now, and yeah. I was taking, taking the bus every day to to college. You know, I couldn't afford a, an Uber. I I just I figured it out. You know, and I was I was doing what I had to do to to continue down that path. And then I went to school for a couple of years. While I was in school, I was applying for all the jobs I could. I couldn't get any. And then one day I started talking to a, a friend of mine from high school that has a, I don't know, similar story, but loosely similar. You know, he had struggled with drugs and alcohol for years and ended up working in, in uh, business development at a treatment facility. And um, he d- was doing really well. And he, he connected me with Northbound. That's who I was working for when we first started talking. Yes, yes, actually. yes, yes. And so... So he connected me with Northbound. They gave me a shot, and I started working in business development at Northbound Treatment Centers. And um, you know, the 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 rest is kind of history. But I I just I, I stayed in this field the the entire time since that that point. Um, moved up to or I stopped working for Northbound after about a year because I got offered a a job as an executive director at another treatment facility called Aspire which was, it was amazing. I couldn't believe that I got that job offer. I thought, wait, wait, what's the title? You know? <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I mean, I did, I did really well there. And I, I hired a, the first person I hired when I, when I had that position was a friend of mine that I had met in in prison. And he was actually a, like a, played a key role in helping me get sober. And like, you know, he had that like sponsor role, um, he, he's not a 12 stepper like I am, but he was, he was like just a, a person that I could talk to and rely on. He always gave me good advice and, you know, he, and he doesn't use drugs or alcohol anymore. He used to, but he doesn't anymore. Um, his name's Lewis. So I hired Lewis at Aspire and he moved up to Fresno with his family. And, um, about eight, nine months later, I got offered the job. Actually, I think my timeline's a little off. It, it was a little longer than that, but I, I got offered the job uh, here at Touchstone, and uh, now, been here over two years. And you're the executive and Lewis, director. Lewis is with me too. 
Um, I'm just wondering, the struggle that you had to get a job because of your criminal background, do you keep that at the forefront? When you're hiring people now, Nolan, do you cut them slack and do you understand that, you know, we all need a second chance? Of course. And I I think, you know, especially in this field, you know, there's the vast majority of people with the substance use problem, um, with a substance use disorder, they're they have some type of of story of incarceration, whether it's, you know, the drunk tank multiple times or DUIs or something as extreme as mine. Um, a, a lot of us that struggle with, with addiction, we, we have some type of, of record, yeah. right? And I, I know that um, coming back from that can be difficult. From I mean, I know that firsthand. So, yeah, of course, I, I think um, here, at, at least at Touchstone, most I'd say over 90% of our employees um, would say that they're in recovery. That's that's fantastic. And you have a, you know, a beautiful family. We know you have two gorgeous kids, a beautiful wife. And, you know, it's, it's, the whole story is amazing. From where you come to where you are now, they should make a movie about you. You know that? <laughs> and And we have the title. We thought about it before the show. The title is From Robbery to Recovery. From Robbery to Recovery. <laughs> you think it should probably be Brad Pitt that plays me. I think. <laughs> there you go. Well, that would be a step down, man. You, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, listen, thank you so much for, for – oh, oh, wait. Oh, well, 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 thank you, Mark. Uh, we have a caller. Uh, Kim Burchette is on the line. Oh, that's my mama. Oh, that's your mom. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Hi, mama. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Hello. How, How are, are you? you? We're 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 Nolan's fans. Yeah. He, he, well, yeah, I'm a big fan too. Well, and I just wanted to say that I can tell as he's talking yeah. that it gets more emotional the yes. more years that go on sure. because he can't really believe that he did what he did. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, he did what he did, but let's focus on look what he's doing now. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know. It's awesome. So, uh, mm-hmm. oh, it's so nice that his mo- that your amazing. mother is on the phone. That is that's a that's it's beautiful. You we are be... such big fans of your son. I can tell you that. <laughs> and you must be so proud of him. I am. I'm proud of all three of them, actually. All right. I'm, I'm Nolan, like Nolan had a Nolan had a bigger journey. <laughs> that's right. <clears throat> so Let's, my mom, my yeah. mom came to visit me every almost every weekend, but. Every other week, at least, for that entire five years, wow. She, wow. she'd drive up and visit me. Wow! Was, Thanks, mom. Love you. Oh, you too. Whoa! All right, guys. We, before we all break up here, uh, we're tearing. Um, thank you so much, Nolan, and thank you, Mama, for coming on the show too. And have a great weekend. And we just love you guys. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure being on. Take care. See you, Nolan. See you. Thank you. Thank you. What a great story. What a great story. I want to – two people have been waiting, uh, Billy Pfeiffer and uh, Bill Stahl and Ray Parzik from Jacksonville, Florida. Mike Burke also is on here. Uh, What a great show. Uh, Remember, if you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, help is available. Please call 1-800-662-HELP. For Clean and Sober Radio, I'm Gary Hendler. I'm Mark Sigmund. Thanks for listening. And to learn more about our broadcast, please join us on our mission at Clean and Sober 
Broadcasting.com. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs>